This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. We're going to be talking today about something that I really see a lot the victim-savior relationship. It's a terrible way to start a relationship, but so many people do it. And in so doing, we're going to be talking about boundaries. What does it mean when someone says they don't have good boundaries? A lot of this is going to be based on the book that I read, and I can't tell you the title of it, (laughs) because this is a show with clean lyrics. It's the subtle art of not giving a, okay, you can look it up, (laughs) an F by Mark Manson, who is a blogger and who has millions of followers. But my book club was reading the book, and so I decided I would read it. He divides people into groups, what he calls victims and savers. I call them saviors. What he may not know is he's actually talking about a part of what's called the Cartman Triangle in psychology, and we'll we'll touch on the Cartman Triangle. We'll discuss common responses when You may try to set a boundary in a relationship, what it tends to do with people. Here at Self Work, we talk about, again, what I call common emotional issues, and this one is a biggie. It'll be hopefully interesting for you to see where you might find yourself. Are you a victim or a savior? And then today, our email from a listener, she had been listening to the latest self-esteem podcast, 061. And had done one of the exercises, but it was actually causing her to feel worse about herself, which I hated. But I decided to feature the question because I certainly don't want anybody else to do what she's doing. So welcome to Self Work. We're going to be talking about boundaries today. Boundaries. What in the world does that word really mean when it comes to relationships? If you look up its definition, a boundary is a limit or an edge where one thing stops and another begins. So when someone says, I don't have good boundaries, what do they mean? Generally, they allow other people to manipulate or disrespect their time, their desires, or their values. Or they may actually ignore their own because they have taken on a Saver mentality, which we'll talk about. And that's how they feel loved by quote unquote saving. The last week I read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Flying Whatever, <laughs> a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. I Google the author, Mark Manson. He's a mega blogger. In fact, he probably has a podcast, a self made guru with millions reading his relationship advice. As I hopscotched through his repetitive use of the F word, which of course I expected, given the title of the book, I was struck by the wisdom he had to offer. And I'm all for sharing wisdom. And it's certainly apparent that many people are liking his very direct, common sense, albeit expletive-filled delivery. He made two points about boundaries and healthy relationships. One, You've got to take responsibility for yourself in a good relationship, meaning you claim your strengths and your weaknesses. And two, you don't want or expect your partner to fix whatever problems you have. The boundary, 
What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. You care that the other person is struggling or in pain. You empathize and help, but you cannot fix it. By the way, I'll have a link to the book in the show notes. So Manson divides people into what he calls victims and savers. As I said before, this is actually very similar to what's described as the Karpman drama triangle in psychology. With conflict in the relationship, there are heroes, I'll save you, victims, help me, and persecutors, it's your fault. Again, this is the Karpman drama triangle. Both people can be addictively drawn to each other, and the relationship becomes a dramatic, off-the-charts roller coaster. Victims don't take responsibility for themselves, and savers absorb the needs and expectations of others in order to feel loved. Important point. Manson points out, and I quote, The victim, if he really loved the saver, would say, Look, this is my problem. You don't have to fix it for me. Just support me while I fix it myself. If the saver really wanted to save the victim, the saver would say, Look, you're blaming others for your own problems. Deal with this yourself. Again, what keeps the saver from doing that is because they need to save in order to feel loved. They think that if they're not saving, there's no way they're going to be loved. Now, I couldn't agree with Manson more. Healthy boundary setting takes two reasonably healthy people, and that's certainly not always the case. If you're a victim or a saver, again, Cartman calls them heroes, setting a boundary with you triggers tremendous insecurity. You can respond with anger, then shift and become a persecutor, using Cartman's language. For example, how many times have I heard one partner say, who's trying to be healthy, I can no longer be as available to you, or I won't be a part of something that's destructive, or I'm not going to allow you to talk to me this way anymore. I won't participate in those conversations. A boundary, a limit is being set. A saver is trying to move out of saving mode. The victim's defensiveness can be intense, and they attack. Again, they can become a persecutor. In fact, Cartman says that if involved in this triangle, victim, hero, and persecutor, that any of us can take any of those roles at any time. It's a fascinating thought, and I'll have the link for you in the show notes if you're interested. So again, we're back to the victim's defensiveness and their attack. What do you mean you can't be as available? I've never asked you to do any of the things you do. I'll be fine without you. Or, what do you mean destructive? What are you going to do about it? Leave me? Why don't you do just that? Leave. Or, what are you saying? That you get to decide when we talk about something and when we don't? Who do you think you are? Does that sound familiar? I was in a relationship where that was frequently, in fact, I was in a marriage where that was frequently said to me. Another stance is you can become even more of a victim than you were before, again, in response to someone trying to set a healthy boundary for you. And you may say something like in your victimized place, what do you mean you won't be as available? You know this is the worst time of my life. I've never needed you more. Or what do you mean destructive? You're the one person who understands how hard it is for me to try to quit drinking. Or I will die if I can't talk to you. These reactions, and of course, that's hard to hear, 
especially if you believe there's any chance someone might actually try to hurt themselves. But that can be used as emotional manipulation. And certainly, these reactions are meant to escalate emotion. The basic message that the victim is saying, you're trying to change the relationship, and I'm not going to allow that. I'll come right back at you. I'll up the psychological ante. It's not necessarily intentional or conscious, but with work and objectivity, each of us can look honestly at our own responses and reactions to those we love and figure out which role we tend to take. Manson continues, and I quote again, People with strong boundaries are not afraid of a temper tantrum, an argument, or getting hurt. People with weak boundaries are terrified of those things and will constantly mold their own behavior to fit the highs and lows of their relational, emotional roller coaster. Yep. (laughs) And yep. So how can you begin to identify your own role? When I have a saver or a victim in my office, I'll offer this scenario and ask what they predict someone who has healthy boundaries would do. Remember, we're going for the healthy person. So this is what I say. You walk up to a park bench, or a healthy person walks up to a park bench. On one end of the bench, there's someone sobbing almost uncontrollably. On the other, there's someone who's dabbing their eyes with a Kleenex, obviously sad. Who would someone with healthy boundaries tend to approach? If I have a saver in front of me, they almost always say, the one who's sobbing uncontrollably. If I have a victim in front of me, they almost always say, the one who's sobbing uncontrollably. And I wonder what you just said to yourself. Then I share what I've learned in 25 years of observing people. Actually, most non-avoidant, non-saving folks, because of course avoiders would leave as quickly as possible no matter what the scenario, they don't want to deal with emotion at all. But non-avoidant, non-saving folks would go to the person who's crying quietly. They'd sense that she or he had at least some capability of soothing themselves, and they might want to help. Now, obviously, if the person on the bench had just found out their entire family had been hit by a train, that's one thing. That's an understandable reaction. But we're talking normal day, everyday disappointment or frustration. People with healthy boundaries are more comfortable helping someone who can help themselves and wants to help themselves. So after I've said all that, the saver sitting in my office again may look at me somewhat astonished and experience the beginning of the realization of their own pattern. I'd feel guilty if I didn't help. But you know, I always feel guilty that I'm not doing enough. I'm tired of feeling guilty. Someone who takes the victim role may begin to realize the impact of their expectations and neediness on others and ask, so how do I learn how to soothe myself? That seems impossible. But what is relevant is that change has begun. That's the gift of insight. It helps you see a connection or a road that you've never been down, and you can choose to change the road you're on. If you're a saver, you can begin to recognize your own value apart from what you do for others. If you tend to be a victim, you can begin to create new skill sets 
and develop habits that bring a sense of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. It takes time, but it can be done. And by the way, as a recovering saver, I ought to know. Now we have an email from a listener. She says, hello, I've written before, and thanks for your previous reply. I enjoyed listening to your self-work podcast. I was listening to the one on ways to boost your self-esteem instead of beating yourself up, which even I can admit that I do. I actually tried one of the exercises of asking people I know what one word they would use to describe me. Again, this is 061 if you're interested. I actually am finding myself disappointed and even sad. The words they use to describe me are variations of responsible, conscientious, devoted, trustworthy, kind was mentioned twice. I liked fervent, respectful was interesting. While these are all good qualities to have, I find myself feeling like it makes me a boring person or better yet, clearly too serious. My takeaway is that I'm the go-to person when something needs to be done. Perhaps that's why people always want me to be involved in this or that. And also, that people I know don't see me as someone they could have fun with. It's true I'm the first person to go to in order to get some task out of the way, but apparently I'm also the last person they want to hang out with. This is exactly what I've been feeling. My value seems to lie in being the listener and being the giver. I'm definitely a very serious person, but it's not like I can't have fun. Is there a way to be less serious? Am I overreacting? If I'm overreacting, could that misperception be perfectly hidden depression or even actual depression? What's the difference between the two? Per your questionnaire, I pretty much have perfectly hidden depression. Is it possible to have both, and how can you tell? Okay, so she starts off with talking about this exercise that seems to have given her information, but not information she particularly is valuing. Then she asks me more questions about perfectly hidden depression, which I have several podcasts on. But let me get to answering her. Hi there, I'm so glad the podcasts are helpful to you. I do want you to notice something, however. You seem to be using an exercise that was designed to help you claim your strengths, and you're instead noticing what isn't there, not what is. You do say you like fervent. I don't see where anyone calls you boring. Your strengths are just that, strengths. No one can be everything. Where there is light, there will be shadow. If you want to learn to play more, that can certainly be a goal. If you've primarily been a giver, then learning how to both ask and receive can provide a huge sense of growth and connection with others. Again, this fit in very well with our victim-saver discussion. Being critical of yourself for realizing there are ways in which you want to grow? I don't think that's helpful. And yes, this kind of thinking may be part of perfectly hidden depression or depression. And I give her a link to an article in my, actually my new column on Psych Central about perfectly hidden depression, which I call the difference between healthy coping depression and perfectly hidden depression. And I will have a link to that as well. For those of you perhaps new to self-work, perfectly hidden depression is a term that I coined almost four years ago now that's about an underlying depression that is masked by a highly perfectionistic, high-functioning, energetic, engaged persona. 
The depression is real, but it's extremely well guarded. I have several podcasts on it, and like I said, I will include this link to my new column at Psych Central, which I'm very excited about. So if you try this exercise in 061 and you get back information, you of course have to sift through that information, but you can use it in constructive ways, not ways then to say, well, why isn't this word there or that word there? Again, that's turning something that's hopefully positive into something negative. There are plenty of ways you can reach out to me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and I do blog there weekly as well as podcast weekly. And if you subscribe over there, you can get a weekly newsletter with those podcasts and blog posts, just in case you're interested. You can also email me, which of course I use for the last segment here on self-work. If you don't want me to do that, then just say so, but you have a question for me you'd like me to answer. I'll try to get back with you just as soon as I can. And that email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen, but especially on iTunes. It takes absolutely no time to leave a rating. A review, it may take three to five minutes, and it can be anonymous. And that, of course, gives me much more information about what people are liking, what people are not liking. So that is especially meaningful when you take the time to do that. Of course, emailing me is also fun, too, because I get to know a little bit more about who you are. And I really feel connected to those of you who've done that. So thank you. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you listen to. That would be fantastic. So I hope this has been enjoyable, looking at the roles you might play and what kind of boundaries you are setting in relationships. You might want to try Mark Manson's book, and I'll have the link in the show notes. I thought it was a really good book. So until next week... Thanks so much for listening, and take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work. <laughs>